0: Father, this morning we do desire to uh, praise you, and particularly as we focus on your faithfulness, we know that you are faithful in every way, and faithful particularly to us. So we praise you for that, praise you for your goodness, your care, and just overall praise you for who you are, and the fact that you've brought us into a relationship with yourself. So as we get into your word that you would in fact make it clear in our minds that we might understand it and be able to uh, live according to it and walk according to your spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as I've got on the screen there, we're going to focus on God's faithfulness. And like I sent in the email... We've seen some dreadful things, dreadful descriptions concerning the nation of Israel, and lest we think that, oh, those Israelites, they're just awful, awful, depraved people. I included in the email the fact that uh, they are somewhat representative of all of humanity, and that would include us as well. In fact, Gentiles are further from God, if you would, in terms of history and what God has done in the past. But uh, as God is faithful to Israel in spite of the depravity, we can be assured of everything that we've read in the book of Romans that God is going to faithfully preserve us the salvation that he's granted. So let's take a look at the faithfulness of God in verses one and two of chapter 11. So we're starting a new part in this 9 through 11 major subdivision of the Book of Romans. And I've been stressing written to Christians. This is not a book written to the unbeliever. It's written to believers that they might understand this doctrine of justification by faith, kind of the central doctrine, in order that they might be equipped to reach people in their culture. And that's exactly what the Roman church was doing in the first century. So we're talking about chapters nine through 11 where God is vindicating his righteousness because there was there would have been an issue in the first century. All of these Gentiles are coming to God. What's going on here if you're Jewish? Aren't uh, Jewish people the chosen? Aren't they the ones that God chose to work through? What's going on with all of these Gentiles? So God is vindicating his righteousness in dealing with a people that are not a people. That's the way the Jews would identify them based on some scriptures. So, he has to explain to them that he has worked sovereignly in choosing Israel. He goes all the way back to Abraham. And even that dealing with the nation corporately, even it, there was selection, there was choice Some were chosen and some were passed over, so he explains that throughout his dealing with Israel, there's always this concept of true believers, you might say, true Israelites. He Starts that in chapter 9, and that goes through 1 through 29, and in that, just as God sovereignly chose Israel, he's free to choose whoever he so desires and because israel has been unfaithful now god is choosing gentiles so god is sovereign in his choices and another reason that israel is set aside is not be- not only because god sovereignly has a plan that includes people outside of israel but he's focusing on uh, all nations not just the nation of israel and israel is rejected or set aside. So, there's a rejection of the nation of Israel because they're under God's discipline. They rejected their Messiah. That's chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. And now we're beginning chapter 11. That rejection is not a permanent rejection. God will, in fact, restore Israel where all of Israel shall be saved. That's chapter 11. So, 11 is more positive 11 is kind of the, the future of Israel. Chapters nine thirty through 10, 21 is the present of Israel, you might say. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 29 is the past. So we have the past, present, and now we're going to look into the future, how God is going to restore the nation of Israel. I used a more close-to-home illustration last time we were in Romans, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. If you think in terms of a family and a child under discipline, the thoughts of the child, you don't love me, you don't care, you know, you've rejected me. When he's under discipline, that might be some thoughts and feelings that he might have. And kind of summarizing chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, the father says, you're my son and always will be. That's God's attitude towards Israel. They are his chosen people, and they always will be. But I have to do what I know is best. And in the plan of God, part of what God has seen and been seen fit is to devise a plan that included people outside of Israel as well. So that's a summary, you might say, or kind of an illustration of chapter 9 through verse 29. and chapter 9, 31 through chapter 2 The end of chapter 10, you are being disciplined because you deserve it. And that's the thrust of what God is saying to the nation of Israel. They're under discipline because they are unfaithful and have basically rejected God's provision, not only in the Old Testament, but provision of a Messiah in the first century. And the optimistic chapter. When you respond rightly, I will restore you to fellowship. And just as a child needs to uh, change their attitude, change their behavior, and the father restores them, he's not casting them out forever. It's a temporary discipline. So also with the nation of Israel, it's a temporary discipline that they are under, even though from uh, the human perspective, it's been for over 2,000 years and seems to go on. So when you respond, rightly, Israel, I will restore you to fellowship. And there are a lot of prophecies that uh, explain a lot of the details surrounding that. And one of the prophetic chapters is Romans chapter 11. So the context, Israel is God's chosen people. God's going to answer what happened to that relationship, they're still God's chosen people. They're simply set aside. The gospel is going out to a broader audience, to the Gentiles. And even that in chapter 9, that is predicted. That is part of God's plan that it should be well known in the Old Testament. And there's, in the present time, a setting aside of Israel and lots of reasons. For example, in chapter 9, verse 31, but Israel, this is the reason, pursued a law of righteousness, in other words, their own self-righteous pursuit, but did not arrive at it because it was not the way that God had set up. He had set up by faith all the way back, going back to Abraham. But they chose a path on their own, and the beginning of chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israelites, is for their salvation. So Paul desires for Jewish people to come into a relationship. And then he bears witness in verse two, for I bear witness or I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal. They, they have lots of good works. They have effort. But.
1: Ray Ray may I ask you a question at this point sure I know you've transitioned uh, but I, I just noticed uh, in um, I wish you not comment on this I I, I noticed in verse 32 and uh, looking at the new American standard where it says why and then it says because they did not pursue it by faith it looks like that they did not pursue it uh, is added of
0: New American Standard. Yes. Do you have
1: a comment
0: on that? Yeah, the translators are doing a little interpreting there, taking some of the other things that Paul has said in chapter nine and kind of filling out basically what Paul is talking about. I think it's a I, I think it's an accurate insertion. That's not uncommon. You you see that a lot uh, in
1: uh Well here let me go on I know that's not uncommon but so then the second question then are there uh are there translations where they would supply something there that's contrary to the way we view that Uh,
0: i'm not aware of any okay Um, that's
1: that's good i just yeah
0: i'm not aware you know off the top of my head uh, you know all of the translations aren't going through my brain right now so okay but Those are some of the things that you, in your Bible study, you want to ask questions about just like you did. And if you just remove that, I guess literally you would translate verse 32, well, starting with 31, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at law. The that is also inserted. Verse 32, why? Because not by faith literally. In other words, their pursuit was not by faith, so the translators include that to kind of fill out the pursuing of verse 31.
1: Thank you.
0: But as though by works, literally. And that was the main thrust of the nation of Israel in terms of their pursuit. It was by efforts, it was by works, as is kind of the tendency of all mankind. And then in verse 10, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. I'm just kind of summarizing why God has set them aside, but not in accordance with knowledge. The scriptures are are clear. The Old Testament makes clear there is information available to the children of Israel. They skip over that because of their blindness to it and because of their desire to do things their way rather than the way that God has set forth. So it's not according to knowledge for not knowing about God. In other words, they missed the main thrust of the Old Testament. They didn't come into a knowledge or a relationship with with God himself. Ginosko there, in other words, personal, intimate knowledge. They don't have a knowledge of God's righteousness or an attribute of God, not knowing God. And then expanding, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So seeking their own path, their own way. Yeah, 9.25, in fact, 9.25, I'm just kind of summarizing stuff that we've already looked at. As he says, also in Hosea, that's why they should know these things. In other words, the scriptures have already explained some of the things that he's explaining here, explaining about why Jews are set aside. In Hosea, in verse 9, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And to a Jew, that's people that are not Jewish. Those are the Gentiles, the hated Gentiles. And her who was not beloved, beloved. He's going to draw them into a love relationship. And then 26, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's a term that Israel, that, that's one that relates to them, and he's going to call these Gentiles on an equal basis as with Israel. And this is not anything new. This is Old Testament. This is Hosea. And then the end of chapter 10, 21 As for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Remember, we looked at that last time, and I summarized Donald Gray Barnhouse's summary of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah just gives phrase after phrase describing Israel. They're a stiff-necked people. That's what Paul says in Verse twenty-one, obstinate is New American Standard, stiff-necked in other translations. They are a sinful nation. They are a hypocritical nation. They are people laden with iniquity. They are rebellious sons. They are offspring of evildoers. They are corrupters. They have forsaken. They are forsaken of the Lord. Provokers, provokers of God, of the Holy One of Israel. God despisers, companions of thieves, wicked, wanton, rotten, drunken bribe givers, bribe takers, proud, arrogant, makers of evil laws, godless, oppressors, treacherous, treacherous dealers, proud drunkards, filthy, scornful men. And I said, this is only a partial list. That's all I could get on the slide. If we could get more, we could go on and on. These are the reasons why they are set aside. So the question is raised, is God finished with Israel? Is he done? And unfortunately, as we've been saying, I've been mentioning over and over, there is a theological position that is relatively prevalent in the church and historically has been present amongst a lot of groups. To and The answer to this question is yes. But I think that is a false interpretation, particularly of Romans chapter 11. The answer is no, God is not finished with Israel. This is where the idea of God replacing Israel with the church comes about. If you stop reading chapter 9 through 10, you could come to that possible conclusion But uh, you're not supposed to stop at chapter 10. You have to read 11. And in chapter 11, Paul emphatically says God is not finished with Israel. The church did not replace Israel. And we've been saying also this idea of the church replacing Israel. Some have taken it the next step, which is a horrible thing. And has resulted in lots of problems in church history. It has taken the next step of anti-Semitism, which is not Ray, supported at all. I
2: see that, Ray. I simply see that as a just, our hearts are just filling in all that list that you had. Man's heart just fills in all that list that you read from Isaiah, which shows that there are even not true believers within Christianity.
0: yes. Yeah, every one of those phrases could apply to the non-Jew as well. Now, Isaiah is addressed to Israel, but by way of application, uh, the Gentile or the unbeliever is more stiff-necked than uh, the children of Israel. Yes, I would agree. So, that's kind of the beginning of our look at chapter 11, kind of a long introduction there, but hopefully get us into the chapter. So, vindication of God's righteousness, this is the chart kind of explained in an outline. The past sovereign election of Israel, chapter 9 through verse 29, 1 through 29. Present national rejection, that's a key word there, national. The nation, individuals within the nation, always there's a responsiveness. We'll talk about the concept of a remnant. There has always been a remnant within the nation of Israel. But the present national situation is one of rejection and discipline, 930 through the end of chapter 10, and now we're going to get into chapter 11, primarily looking to the future restoration of Israel. But before it gets into some prophetic passages, Paul is going to talk about the rejection is not a total rejection it is only partial. In other words, it's national in the sense that corporately the nation is set aside, but there have always been individuals within the nation. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw even within the children of Abraham, it's through Isaac that the promises will go. And even within the family of Isaac, we still have, It's Jacob rather than Esau. So there has always been a faithful remnant, and uh, part of that is part of the, the way that God has set it up in terms of his choice. So the rejection is not total. First 10 verses of chapter 11, because there's the existence of a remnant. We'll talk some more about it. I'm just somewhat introducing it today. That's the first six verses. And we can look at the individual verses. He's going to raise this issue that we've been discussing in verse 1. And that issue, I say then, kind of transitioning now to explain what he's been talking about in chapters 9 and 10. I think it's kind of uh, introductory in terms of transition into now here is the positive And he's going to raise the question concerning Israel. God has not rejected his people, has he? So it's a question. And obviously, some of you Greek students, how is it phrased? What is the expected answer?
3: No.
2: Meganoito.
0: Meganoito, very good. That's the answer, and it's given in the next line. That's what I was looking for, which is absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. Now, the way that it's phrased here, the, in the Greek, when you want to emphasize something, you put it at the very beginning. So what's at the very beginning here is the, the verb, rejected, and it's negated. Has rejected or has not rejected God, his people. Has he, that would be literally a way to translate it, to emphasize the rejection and the emphatic negation of it in the very next line. So God has not rejected his people. That is clear. In fact, the wording itself, the way Paul phrases the statement or the question would, uh, in a Jewish mind, it would remind them of lots of passages in the Old Testament. In fact, let's look up some of those passages that emphasize God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And uh, some of these passages we could look at, we won't look all of these up, but let me just remind you, we've talked about covenants before. In fact, we've mentioned them in chapter 9, the Abrahamic covenant, and in Genesis 17, in verses 9 through 8, you can just jot it down, you don't need to look it up, but what is stressed in those verses is this covenant is an everlasting covenant, or an eternal covenant. And God's promise to Abraham concerning the nation of Israel, as depicted in Genesis 17, 7 through 9, Gives assurance that God is never going to abandon his people. So we have, and remember, covenants are legal documents. God binds himself legally for an eternal contract that he will never abandon the nation. The Davidic covenant, you have a similar phrase, an everlasting covenant is the Davidic covenant as well. In other words, there will always be a descendant of David that will occupy the throne of Israel. It will always exist as a kingdom, even though it's set aside presently. But the king that is occupying today, he hasn't set up the kingdom on earth yet but uh, is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7, that's the central passage for the Davidic Covenant, and in verse 16 tells us that there will be a descendant, and it looks at the ultimate descendant, the Messiah, that will always occupy that throne. And even the New Covenant that I don't think has put into effect yet And won't until the Lord returns, I believe, in terms of its relationship to the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 31. It also stresses in verses 35 through 36. In fact, Jeremiah uses kind of a physical imagery and says, as long as you can count on the laws of nature, God will not abandon the nation of Israel. In other words, the universe will have to fall apart. In a significant way. In other words, the laws beginning to uh, reverse themselves and and basically go to nothingness before God is going to abandon his people. So, all of these covenants speak in terms of an eternal relationship. Now, here's some passages. Would some of you look them up? I think the language that Paul uses. When he says God has not rejected His people, would remind Jewish people, Jewish readers, and in this case, these would be believers. He would remind them of passages like First Samuel twelve. Would someone uh, look that passage up? We won't look all of these up for the sake of time. Uh, we'll skip the Nehemiah passage. But one thing I want you to notice: there's a theme in all of these passages. Uh, while you're looking it up, somebody else look up uh, Psalm uh, 94.
3: I've got Psalm 94.
0: Okay, somebody got First Samuel 12, and somebody look up Jeremiah as well. Uh, Jeremiah, in fact, Je- uh, Jeremiah, I kind of stumbled over Jeremiah in, uh, I'm reading through the Bible, like some of you, in fact. There's one that made a commitment to reading through uh, the Bible, and he's already completed the entire reading plan.
3: Got Jeremiah.
0: Who's got it? Nobody wants. Nobody wants. First uh, Samuel 12. Anybody got it? Let's start yeah, with it.
1: Samuel 12. Who's got it? Patrick.
0: Patrick. Why don't you start it off? Start off with 12. It's kind of shorter, but it gives us the theme 20 through 22.
3: You mean
1: 1 Samuel 12.
0: Uh, What did I say? 1 Samuel 12. I'm sorry.
1: Samuel said to his people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased. To make you a people for Himself.
0: Okay. See the two aspects in First Samuel 12. This is in the time frame before there was a king. In fact, uh, the first king is being anointed uh, in prior passage. So this is in a time in the the heart of Israel's history. Two themes: Israel's unfaithfulness. And God's faithfulness. In spite of unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. Who's got Psalm 94? You have the same theme, 11 through 14.
3: Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance.
0: Notice God is not going to forsake his people, not going to reject his people. But what precedes that? The sinfulness of mankind. Now, the psalmist, I can't remember the context of that, but if you read the Nehemiah passage, we won't read it, but this is during the time of restoration, and Nehemiah reviews their history of unfaithfulness. And then in verse 31, we have a similar passage in terms of of the Lord not casting them away or rejecting them. Patrick, read Jeremiah. It's Go ahead and start in verse 10 and notice the same theme. And you can see the same thing in the Psalm 106 passage as well. And by the way, there's others as well. So Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 10.
1: Okay, I'm turning there.
0: And by the way, Jeremiah is looking ahead.
1: Okay, Jeremiah 16. 10 through 15. Correct. Uh, now, when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? Or has the Lord declared all this great calamity? Or I'm sorry. Or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? Stop there. Then,
0: Does okay. that sound familiar? What did I do? It's not so bad. What's going on? This is on the occasion of the Babylonian captivity where God is essentially done with the nation of Israel in terms of their Old Testament history. So they're questioning, you know, what did we or why? Why are you bringing this judgment on us? Verse 11. Go ahead.
1: Then you are to say to them, it is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my law.
0: Now those are the ancestors, so they have a history of idolatry. Keep reading.
1: You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, And there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor.
0: That's the Babylonian captivity. That's the Babylonian captivity. And notice verse 12, you too. In other words, you're just as stiff-necked or just as stubborn in the passage. And then verse 14.
1: Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, But as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers.
0: So in the midst of apostasy, in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of stubbornness, God is going to cast them. He's going to discipline them. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity. But in the same following passage, God is going to restore them. So it's not a permanent captivity. And the application would be similar in terms of the time frame that Paul is writing. And that's one of the points he's going to make. And he's going to answer the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? And the answer is "Megenoito." There it is on the screen. And this is the, in the Greek language, the strongest way that you can negate a statement. And theologians have come up with different ways of summarizing that, away with the thought, banish the thought. I haven't shown this slide in several months, so show it again here. Let not such a thing be considered. You might summarize Megenoito let it not be conceived of, in other words, this is beyond thinking, perish the idea, be it not so, impossible for God to reject his people, good heavens no, are you crazy, that's the one I like, or absolutely not. So God has not rejected his people, and certainly the church has not replaced Israel, God still has a plan, and Paul now is going to give some examples, and he starts with himself as a prime example of God not rejecting all of Israel. Yes, nationally, they're under discipline and rejected, but that rejection is not a total rejection, and Paul is the prime example. And he uses himself, for I, too, am an Israelite. I'm Jewish, Paul is saying. I am a prime example. In fact, Paul is one of the least likely. Now, if you asked somebody, when uh, Paul and his companions left for Damascus in Acts chapter 9... Would there be any possibility that Paul would ever trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer would be unanimously no way. No way could Paul ever tr- trust in Christ. He kills Christians. Would somebody look up Galatians 1. This is Paul's own testimony. And someone else, 1 Timothy 1:13 1, through 14. So I'm Paul
3: Galatians.
0: Okay. Is that Connie? Yes. Who's got first Timothy anybody I do all right that sounds like Mary Lee Mary Lee, yeah, okay, go ahead you got Galatians one thirteen fourteen Paul the most unlikely why
3: for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the Church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation if he if anybody was
0: if anybody was Jewish. It would have been Paul. If anyone was devoted, if anyone was pursuing righteousness, there was no one that surpassed Paul. That's what he's saying there. Sorry, Connie. Go ahead. Keep reading.
3: Just being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father.
0: Okay. And yet, if you keep on reading, he gives the rest of his testimony. So he's very unlikely, at least from the human perspective. Mary Lee, First Timothy 1, 13 through 14.
2: All right. So formally... I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ
4: Jesus.
0: So Paul is prime example number one, that if Paul can be saved out of the nation of Israel, then there's the potential that anyone could be saved. Paul, the most unlikely, came into a saving relationship, so this salvation is available to any Jew. Paul would have been somewhat a representative of all within the nation, and if he could receive this justification by faith, then anyone in Israel. So an Israelite, usually when you think of an Israelite related to the nation, related to the land Paul was intimately related to the land, traced his lineage all the way to the first promise, all the way to to Abraham. And not only an Israelite, but a descendant of Abraham. So tracing lineage all the way back to Abraham. And uh, that would be relating to the the covenant, a descendant of Abraham under the Abrahamic covenant. So you couldn't be much more Jewish than than Paul himself. And not only that, but of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was one of the smallest tribes, but keep in mind, Benjamin was also a faithful tribe. When the 10 tribes abandoned the worship in Jerusalem to set up their own. Do you remember after Solomon, we have uh, a division in the kingdom? Uh, Rehoboam's kingdom is divided. Jeroboam takes the 10 tribes to the north. The only one that remained faithful was the tribe of Benjamin. Even though the smallest of the tribe, do you see it there in the center? Let's see if I can highlight it here. Benjamin and Judah remained faithful while all of the other tribes to the north and even to the uh, east of the Jordan River, they formed the northern kingdom in rebellion, and there was not a single good king that came out of the northern kingdom. So the tribe of Benjamin had a history of being faithful to the southern kingdom but also fell into idolatry like all of the other uh, tribes as well. So we have Paul as the prime example. And now we have in verse 2, we have the parallel with Elijah as a parallel beginning in verse 2. But before he gets into Elijah, he's going to reiterate, to re-emphasize, so you can go back to all of those same passages, and he states it more in the positive. He asks it as a question with a negative answer. God has not, in other words, emphatically, God has not rejected his people. So God has not rejected his people reiterate it. So that's why I call it an echo of non-rejection, beginning in verse 2, and it introduces us to further reasons why God has not totally rejected the nation, and it's a partial rejection. It's a national rejection, but it's not a complete rejection. And he reminds us of what we talked a lot about in chapter 9, when we talked about God choosing them. Now, he doesn't use the word uh, election here. Now, he will later in the same passage. But here he starts with the idea of foreknowledge. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about foreknowledge in chapter 9. In fact, we talked about it in chapter 8 as well. In chapter 8, it dealt with believers during the church age. And just a quick reminder, the term proginosko, no, notice it has the word ginosko, that's the common word for knowing intimately, or knowing in a relationship, or knowing by experience, lots of, lots of occurrences in the New Testament. And then it has pro, a preposition attached to it, P-R-O there, which has the idea of before, or to know intimately before, to have prior intimate knowledge. And it doesn't occur often. It only occurs, I think, five times in the New Testament. We have the the noun form, prognosis. Prognosis. What's a prognosis? Prognosis comes from the same uh, idea in the noun form. Only occurs five times in the New Testament, but In some of the usages, it seems to carry more the idea of not just God simply knowing ahead of time. I mean, when we speak of God's omniscience, God knows all things, past, present, future. And prognosco, I think, carries certainly the idea of knowing beforehand, simply. But I think because of the context and because of other indicators in the context It seems to go beyond that, and some theologians even go so far as to say it's another word for the idea of God choosing ahead of time. In other words, not only knowing ahead of time, but in fact, setting up a plan ahead of time. Now, it's used in a common everyday usage in one of those five, in Acts 26 5, just simply to know beforehand, and in a human sense, you know, we make plans and we can count on the sun coming up and we'll say at sunrise, we'll do such and such. You can know certain things out of perhaps a, a natural sense or maybe something is pretty certain to know beforehand. Kind of a, an everyday example, Acts six five. But in relationship to God, we have some of the other usages, 1 Peter 1, 20 and Acts 2.26. This is one of the passages with the noun, or at least the Acts 2.23, and in that context, the Acts 2.22 and 23 passage speaks of a a plan of God where, where God not only foreknows, but God has predestined certain things, so God has set in motion things relating to Christ himself. This is one of the passages that seems to indicate that there's more to this idea than just simply knowing ahead of time. And and then God...
3: What does the N stand for, Ray? Noun. Thank you.
0: The noun form. And uh, the passage we're looking at relating to the nation of Israel, and I think it's just simply reminding us of the whole concept of the doctrine of election that we talked about in chapter 9. Israel is foreknown in the sense that God not only knows... But God has set in motion a plan that includes the choosing of Israel. We spend a lot of time talking about that. I'm not going to go over it. In fact, we have that same concept in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And in terms of New Testament believers, there's the 829, Romans 820, 829, and then another passage in 1 Peter 1 2. And I take that first Peter 1 2 passage in this sense of God not just knowing ahead of time but in terms of choice as well. In fact, the word election occurs in that context. So we have this echo of non-rejection, and this is probably a good place to stop for today, and we'll pick up there. We have this entreaty of Elijah. And the reason we need to stop there, because we need to go back to where this passage comes from and develop a little bit of the background. We need to look at First uh, Kings chapter 18. This comes out of chapter 19, but you have to understand what went on in chapter 18 to get the context of chapter 19. So in terms of Elijah, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about about Elijah. And what he's going to do is develop this idea that Elijah is parallel to the situation in the first century. In other words, in the day of Elijah, Israel was rebellious. In fact, the ministry of Elijah, Elijah is raised up in order to call Israel back to himself. They were into idolatry. And uh, Elijah is thinking that he is the only one. He's the last prophet. He's the only one. But we'll see in the next passage and from uh, the First Kings passage that Elijah is unaware that God has preserved for himself. In other words, God is the one that has done the preserving. God is the one that has done the acting here, the action. God has preserved for himself 7,000 And they are a remnant within the nation of Israel. So in the passage, Elijah, the last part of verse 2, how he pleads with God against Israel. In other words, he's essentially calling down discipline upon his own people because they're rebellious. They need to be shaken. They need to be awakened. God needs to act in, in discipline And he's calling upon that discipline, and then later on we'll see that he cries out that he thinks he's the only one. So we will look next time at the victorious chapter, 1 Kings 18, and we'll focus on 19 through 22. I'll give you a quick overview of that, and then we'll talk about the passage that Paul quotes out of in Romans, out of actually chapter 19. And there's a drastic change from eighteen to nineteen that we need to develop in order to I think understand what Paul is saying. any further comments or questions before we close in prayer today?
3: I just wanted to ask Jim we closed last time with him running off to Hoffman town for the introduction of a new senior pastor and I wondered who that was
0: uh that's a he's actually. Somebody that was here in Albuquerque all the while, he worked for uh, Jim, may have run off again. I don't know if he's still on to answer you. Is he on? The answer is I don't remember the name, but he has been involved in the Southern Baptist Convention, was a former pastor, and apparently. The main thing that we were concerned about is he's an expositor of the Bible. In other words, sentence by sentence exposition. And that was something that we were hoping for, or Jim and others at Hoffmantown. I don't have the name. You can go to the Hoffmantown website and they'll have a bio and some of his old sermons as well. Great. Thanks. Yep. I guess you volunteered to pray
3: too, huh? Okay. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for... Your faithfulness. I pray that as we leave here and walk through our weeks, uh, we would experience that and revel in it and rejoice because of who you are. Father, I thank you that though we all have different decisions to make um, and things to do, Uh, Katie's husband traveling to Georgia for this training in a new position, Father, that. You would be with each of us uh, in our separate undertakings to show us your faithfulness, and may we walk in that this week.
0: Amen. Thank you.
2: Actually, I'm uh, an old friend of Sharon. We were nurses together. Oh, okay. Years ago, and I've been associated tangentially with your church through various friends over the years. So, okay. Hello. Good morning.
0: Good morning.
2: Morning. Hello. Hi, I,
3: I hear my darling Linda. Uh-huh. <laughs> Linda. Hi. Hi. Do you still have the same email? Yes, ma'am.
0: Okay. Okay. I want to
3: give a shout out to Connie. Yesterday was her birthday.
0: Connie's birthday. Wow. Happy birthday, Connie. Yeah.
3: Thank you.
0: You're all of 39, right?
3: Yeah, it's some anniversary of my 39th birthday.
0: Good. Well, we'll see you all next week. Any last goodbyes?
2: I have a question for Nate. <laughs> Nate, when you teach again, I love saying your name. My brother's name is Nate. Um, can you touch on the, diff- like the majority and the Nestle, um, you know, the the texts. Can you hear me?
4: Yeah, I can hear you. When I teach again?
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah that would be uh, yeah, the issues with those the different texts, anyway, if you can
0: can you give a ten okay. second uh, summary
2: look <laughs> well, my Bible, but you know, I'm familiar but I know there's some issues in in different te- using you know usually they note the differences and so forth
4: the ten second summary that is allowed is aloud uh, is that the nestle Island. Or the United Bible Society's Greek text, those two that I highlighted, uh, which tend to be the, the base text for a lot of your modern translations, those tend to use the older, fewer manuscripts. Uh, they rely on the, the, the older manuscripts. Some of the big ones, like Codex Sinaiticus, the Papyrus, the Codex Vaticanus, uh, the older and fewer in number, whereas the majority text. Uh, relies on what's known as the Byzantine manuscripts, which is the great majority of, of manuscripts that survive, but they're older from the 10th century on. There there isn't really a Bible translation that I know of that follows the majority text. Um, the closest to it would be the King James and the New King James, but really those were based on a few manuscripts that are of the Byzantine um, later manuscript tradition, but there are significant differences even between that and what's technically the majority text. Uh, so there's a group of scholars that prefer the majority text. Actually, there's um, uh, ties with Schaefer and several of the professors from Schaefer would prefer the majority text. Uh, those of you who know Glenn, Glenn would prefer the. so there's a kind of debate there the uh to take 10 more seconds go ahead the uh advantage of the of the older fewer manuscripts as far as apologetics which was more the area i was talking on is that when you um if if you completely dismiss the older manuscripts then you can't appeal to those in your apologetics and say, oh, look at these older manuscripts we have. If you say, oh, we're not going to use those, we don't care about those at all, then you can't use those for your apologetics and say, oh, look how close our New Testament is to when it was actually written. If you completely dismiss the majority texts, then you're saying, oh, most of the manuscripts that we have, we don't really care about those. So I kind of like to find a a balance there because both... Groups have value as far as apologetics go. Ray might have his ten seconds he wants to throw in there too. I'm not sure what what Ray's yeah. position is.
0: Yeah, I would follow what you're saying. I use the UBS text myself. So one of the basic you differences, got, though, between the King James and most of the other translations is King James primarily, as Nate indicated, relies on the majority text.
4: Okay. Although again, it's just a few. It's not really a majority text translation. I would say. Yeah. And they will say that in the preface. Yeah. Okay. The...
2: Okay, so I, I you know, I, I generally use the New King James. Well, I have a dozen things, but New King James, and it and it not, has notations. You know, when it differs in general. So I'm hoping you know that I can rely on that versus taking Greek and Hebrew.
4: Yeah, the, the the New King James, like I said there's excellent translations, New King James, New American Standard, and and your study Bibles will all have notes. And if people that really like to study their Bible might consult, you know, if you read New King James, you consult New American Standard and there you'll see where there might be some differences.
0: And okay. guess and guess what? The Holy Spirit is able to use all of them. <laughs>
2: Praise God for that. I'm so thankful. He's such a faithful God, as you pointed out. That there's always a remnant, and the Jews yep. are very important in history. Thank you.
0: And Janie, why don't you
2: share? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I definitely knew. Um, came out here and visited you guys with um uh, uh, at the church out there, Grace, in Albuquerque, with Sandy Meisinger. Her husband used to be my pastor in California. And uh, anyway, um, how far back do you want me to go, Ray?
0: Well, whatever you can fit in, about six, seven minutes.
2: Basically, my connection to Albuquerque is Sandy Meisinger. And George was uh, my pastor out in California. Um, Wow. I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, uh, but before that, you know, I was bored basically. Grew up in East LA, learned, learned Spanish a little bit when I was five, six, seven at a at a church school, Lutheran. And then, uh, so, you know, I know about, actually, let's go back a little, because he said to witness. Um, you know, I believed in God, Um as far as I can remember, from the universe, the stars and the molecule, you know, the inner universe. But I didn't believe the story of Jesus. Sounded like a big fairy tale to me, so. Anyway, uh, so I, I became a believer at a youth rally um, in uh, California when I was in high school and uh, was pretty on fire. Uh, what happened with me, you know, I've, um, I was, a uh, I was very aware of being separated from God and in my sin, if you will. And so to me, I, you know, I basically, um, it was like last resort, um, Southern California, <laughs> 1970s. And, uh, when he, um, gave the message, I, uh, I was praying and I felt loved from my toes to my head. And, um, now I know you don't have to have the sensation, but it was like light filled my body. And when I opened my eyes from the prayer, uh, I was crying and I went down and got a Bible and all I knew was (laughs) it was through Jesus. And, and, uh, I went home to unbelievers and, uh, you know, was labeled a Jesus freak at school, but uh, my whole family eventually believed, and uh, I started studying. I just went from church to church, flailing around, you know, where they just preached the love of God loves everybody, and, you know, nothing really good, nothing that showed me anything about understanding the Bible better, until a sister-in-law, you know, had a tape recorder, and she... Um, played these tapes from this guy in Texas and uh, so I was studying the doctrine of divine decrees when I was like 17 (laughs) and um, kind of that kind of is my story and and then uh, um, you know eventually found George's church I I bought a place up in Seattle and uh, and it took me a while you know because I was into a lot of real negative stuff when I got saved Um, to separate from patterns, certain patterns I was in, and people. And um, so anyway, eventually, um, I found some really good teaching, um, took hermeneutics at the seminary, Schaefer, out there in Orange County. And uh, when um, God taught me a lot about, uh, I went through a hard time in 08, I'll just put it like that, and he taught me... um, to trust him no matter what. And uh, so it was kind of, you know, my mantra to trust God through thick and thin and whatever I went through. Um, So um, came out here when uh, George told me to keep an eye on Sandy (laughs) when he was really sick, but uh, she's doing real well, you know. (laughs) So I came out here and just bought a, a house out here in Rio. And I moved here right at the beginning of this COVID outbreak which is uh, uh, kind of difficult for me, you know, I just, I was uh, uh, wanting to continue at that church in Albuquerque and uh, I'm very high risk, so here I am. Uh, Yeah, so that's about it, you know, just uh, trying to, I basically, to me, um, spread, oh, I, I, I didn't tell you, it was a teacher, elementary, high school, and a high school diploma, and uh, esl so esl wound up uh prompting me to go out to ukraine uh with the myers i was there one summer and uh uh yeah so um i just tutor kids and adults now um uh, adults in writing mostly immigrants and uh children god has used me in sharing the good news of jesus (laughs) and the way mostly to Chinese and Vietnamese uh, young people, and uh, which I never expected just one-on-one and uh, or just a few kids. And so here, um, here I am and I'm, I'm real blessed to be able to listen to this good teaching and I hope to get to know some people here. Uh, anyone that wants my number to go walking or something I'm kind of desperate for <laughs> friendship, but um hopefully i'll open up a, a little get together at my place sometime when it isn't so blasted hot you know outside of the patio so that's it you know i I just uh i'm into, I, I I have two big huge uh container gardens in the backyard, and that's what I've been doing um shoveling rock out here in Rio. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, good. Uh, Any prayer
2: requests, Jamie? Well, I have a nephew. I have uh, like 38 nieces and nephews. So I have a nephew out in the the Middle East. He's only 18. He just turned 18. He's an unbeliever. Um, His name is Jacob. Yeah, I have – I was on a 4,000-mile road trip before I came out here and stayed with uh, most of my nieces and nephews. And – yeah, one of the, he's on my heart right now, Jacob, and Joe, Joe, actually, Joe's the one in, in the Middle East, but there's four boys, um, they're brothers, so. And they all, all right. live in the Middle East? No, just just one, but um, they're unbelievers, so just praying, you know, praying for their uh, awakening to the good news, you know, they'll look at it. A few of them asked me about, about the Lord and about uh, the Bible, so.
0: All righty. Well, goodbye, y'all. We'll see you. Thanks,
2: Jamie, for sharing. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for welcoming me. Um, Yeah, I get a little nervous when I have to talk in public, (laughs) even though we're all in our bedrooms or our living rooms or whatever.
3: (laughs) And you were thrown into it at the last minute, so you did great.
2: Yeah, well, he's been talking to me about this, and I'm... You know, I get ready, but this morning I wasn't really. I get up in the middle of the night sometimes, so i still adjust. So, to the okay. area.
0: goodbye, you all.
2: God Bye. bless you. Bye. Bye. Bye everyone. Go with God.